Sean Neds do baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And we're doing some baseball. We got uh, another episode uh, our baseball history podcast. It's our 20th episode. 20th. It's 20th. Special. It is. And it's going to be extra special. Why is that? Uh, well, because it's long. It's long. This is the longest notes I've ever made. So I'm not sure. I, I kind of previewed everybody a couple days ago that it might be two parts i think it'll be two parts. it'll probably end up being two parts so, so if it is this is the first part and uh episode 20 part one part one uh 20 a yeah i hope everybody's doing well out there follow us on social media twitter at Twi- doing baseball at doing baseball instagram at doing dot baseball if you're the guy in korea or wherever it is you are the one that holds the doing baseball handle Message us. Yeah, we would love to we have We would that. like to have that. We'll give you $10 or something. We'll send you a nice Sean Ned's Do Baseball mug. Yeah. It <laughs> cost us $17 plus shipping, but exactly. we'll do it. We'll do it for you, yeah. whoever you are. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what do you got for me? Uh, I, I, if you don't know the format, we uh, share a, hist- uh, share a story. Bi-weekly. Share a story from baseball history every other week. Uh, this week and probably the next one as well. Uh you're going to be hearing Edzie tell me a story. So I'm excited to, to sit back. He has no idea what I'm talking about. I have no idea what I'm about All right, to hear. I'm gonna, I got you... a little preview, though. Yeah, and a little bit. I, a bit I, of a teaser. I have no idea what I'm in for, but I'm excited. Okay, are you ready? Yeah. June 1889. All right. John Montgomery Ward, shortstop of the New York Giants, was playing terrific baseball on his way to a world championship. Ward was also president of the Brotherhood of Professional Baseball Players. That sounds cool. Yeah. It was a proactive, uh, sorry, it was a protective association that was the first union of pro athletes in the United States. That's awesome. Yeah. He was about to face an unprecedented crisis in American sports. He and his Brotherhood members, which included virtually every player in the National League, planned to stage a strike for July 2nd which would severely jeopardize the lucrative doubleheaders which all teams were set to play on the 4th of July. Interesting. Yes. So wait, they're not but they're not doing it on the 4th of July. They're doing it on the 2nd. Well, they're doing it. Yeah, they're doing it bef- right before and I guess I guess they're hoping that it will get to it, yeah, but it, it, assuming that they're hoping for time for negotiations or whatever. All right. The three main issues of the dispute were one, abil- abolition of the classification system and reimbursement for all losses incurred by players. Two, no reservation of salary lower than the previous year. Three, absolute abolition of the practice of selling players. Interesting. I don't think they changed that. (laughs) We're about to find out. The first point was spurred by the adoption of a new system brought in by ownership in winter 1889 known as the Brush Classification Plan. Indianapolis owner John T. Brush proposed that players be classified by five categories. Habits, earnestness, and special qualifications. Which is only three, but... Wait, so... I guess, I guess special qualifications could have been split into 
Wait, what, other what, what were the three? So habits, habits, earnestness, earnest. That's important, obviously, yes, on and the special field. qualifications. It's special. So there's three out of five, and uh, we're just saying it's five. Yeah. All right. The last one's probably pretty arbitrary. Yeah. So there's lots of. Th- I mean, special. I'm, I'm sure you're about to tell us, but yeah. Salary would be determined by off-field conduct in addition to on-field performance. Okay. Players felt that these standards were subjective and that they were too much to bear, and that the odious classification plan was symbolic of the National League's, quote, utter failure to consider the rights of its players. All right. These supposed impending salary cuts were in addition to a league policy of making players pay for their own uniforms and a 50-cent daily charge for meal money. Yeah, this sounds like Little League. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, you want to play on the team, you gotta, you got to get well, a jersey. you, you got to get a sponsor. <laughs> you go down to the shops, you get a jersey, and then you're ready to go. <laughs> Anybody can do it. Oh, by the way, bring a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, bring a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> or 50 cents, we'll give you some soup. All right. All right, so Ward, far from a radical, opposed strikes as a rule. It's probably maybe why it was on the second instead of the fourth. However, he strongly believed that the owners treated the players unfairly. He knew this was likely the best time to make the bold move that he and some of the other leading players had been discussing in secret ever since the classification plan had been announced, now that there was palpable ire among the brotherhood of players that he could marshal. So... He's got them all fired up. They're all pissed off about this. They're ready to go. This well, is the time for the strike. They have to buy their own uniforms. Yes. Of course they're mad. <laughs> yeah. The Brotherhood planned to change the status of ball players from employees and corporate assets into partners and entrepreneurs. Interesting. Yeah, tall glass to fill, I think. But in early July, he called a meeting of Brotherhood members and persuaded members to delay the strike for two weeks while he developed another proposal. So he didn't. Go for the strike. On July 14th, 1889, Ward proposed that each player look up the feasibility of securing capital in his own city for the purpose of forming their own major league. Interesting. Uh, The current structure of Major League Baseball was assumed in the 1880s, and it is no surprise that that it has risen as a monopoly in the heart of the robber baron era. What began with the formation of the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs in 1876, baseball was becoming a departure from the previous professional organization, the National Association of Professional Baseball Players. The association, considering itself to be by and for the players, and the National League, on the contrary, was a league of ball club owners to whom the players were merely employees. I wonder who wins. (laughs) The class struggle between capitalist club owners and laborer players has been at the heart of nearly all disputes in baseball for its entire history. Yeah. Yeah, Good thing it doesn't happen now. Good thing it's not going on right as we speak. You know? That's that's just an 1800s Yeah, that's just an 1880s thing. (laughs) A game, the product, at the highest level could not occur without the players of this caliber. However, from 1879 to 1976, owners held total control of the product with the reserve rule. Beginning as a gentleman's agreement between clubs, each club would reserve five of its top players... And the other league's clubs agreed not to bid for those players' services. By 1887, reservation virtually included every player on a team's roster. Every baseball contract stated, quote, If the club tendered a contract to one of its players and the player did not accept it, the club shall have the right 
to renew the contract for the period of one year. Okay, so it's like, yeah, if we offer you a contract and you don't take it, you still got to work for us for a year. Yeah. You, for, don't get a, you don't get a choice in that. No, no. Ridiculous. Former MLB, yeah. MLB Players Association head Marvin Miller wrote, quote, management had always said that this right of renewal had no limit. Simply stated, the claim was that a club had the right to renew a player's contract forever. The only alternative a player had to complying was to quit playing baseball for a living. So, and so yeah, they could just do this consistently. So, yeah. okay, here's a contract. You don't like it? Well, you still got to work for the next year. Here's a contract. You don't like it? You mm-hmm. So you're just... It's just perpetual bullshit. Yeah, and, you, and it keeps you forever tethered and unable to uh, explore other options. Yes. The reserve rule restricted player movement. It, in turn, artificially depressed player salaries by eliminating players' opportunities to sell their services to other employers. It was put in place partially to combat revolving, which was common before the reserving rule. And that was, you, you didn't have to have like a contract for a full season. Mm-hmm. So you could just, you know, be signed for like a month or something yeah, as yeah, like yeah. a hired gun. And we, then, we've, we've gone through some of this crazy shit back in the, the 1870s and 1880s. Guys playing for multiple teams. Yeah. 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 Fans didn't like it. They weren't sure if the lineup would be accurate for the day. So, like, the card was subject to change, essentially. Mm-hmm. Owners didn't like continuously negotiating with players. Players often would wind up back where they began, but at a higher pay rate. Uh, the institution of the reserve rule gave management unilateral control over club rosters and salaries. A player could only be removed from a team through injury or retirement and would have to be released by his club even in those situations. <laughs> so even if you retired, they'd have to be like, and say you wanted to come back two years later, the Blue Jays, I mean, not that this was in place back yeah. then, but say the Blue Jays, for example, would have to be like, it's okay, Sean, you can go sign with the Red Sox now. <laughs> I lost my yeah. arms. Am I allowed yeah. to retire? <laughs> No. <laughs> you and we're not paying you. You got, you got to buy a new uniform with no armholes. Uh, yes. Uh, where are we? Salary negotiation was simple, except the clubs offer or don't play. This obviously led to suppressed salaries for players and increased profits for owners. The structure of baseball had come from the framework drawn out in, the 1883, in 1883 by the National Agreement a compact which declared all American association and national league clubs to be quote, major league teams. It declared all clubs in each league would honor the other's reserve rights, guaranteed exclusive rights to their geographic locations within their leagues, established maximum salaries of $2,000, made the reserve rule a mandatory stipulation of all player contracts and establish a blacklist for non-compliant players. Holy shit. All right, so salary cap yeah. can't move anywhere, and there's just a blacklist of just... If you just... don't like it, you don't get to play anywhere. Oh. You don't get to be a major leaguer. That... All right. So obviously the impact of only two major leagues being united behind a pledge to reserve players was immense. John Ward had a bone to pick. Ward was born in Belfonte, Pennsylvania in 1860, a certified baseball star. He began his career with Providence on the NL squad in 1878, first a pitcher. Ward in his second season had a 47-17 and record, led the NL in victories and his team to a world championship. In 1880, he pitched the second perfect game in history. 
Arm trouble made him a part-time pitcher, and by 1885, he was a shortstop with the New York National League Club. I like that his arm hurt, and then they just put him at shortstop. Yeah. (laughs) This is an easy throw for you. Yeah. All the while he was doing this, he was attending Columbia University, earning both bachelor's and law degrees from that institution. Wow. In 1885, along with eight other members of the Giants, Ward formed the Brotherhood of Professional Baseball Players with the purpose, quote, to protect and benefit its members collectively and individually to promote a high standard of professional conduct and to advance the interests of the national game. All right. The other getting mem- all learned and getting all unionized. Yeah. The other members elected him president, obviously. Yes. Yes. Makes sense. By 1887, the Brotherhood had 107 National League and American Association players on its membership rolls with organized chapters in every major league city. The players had organized themselves for protective purposes and were yet to flex their muscles against the owners. There was no immediate disapproval of the reserve rule. However, the Brotherhood did press ownership to incorporate the rule into player contracts, which Ward likely knew would elevate it to a legal point rather than the gentleman's agreement between the magnates. God, all right. Smart move. Yeah, Columbia University's paying off. Yeah, yeah. Ward's 1888 book, quote, or 1888 book, How to Become a Ball Player, described the rule as, quote, the most important feature of the national agreement and that baseball as a business owes its present substantial standing to the rule. Ward acknowledged an inability to see an alternative, saying, quote, The reserve rule is itself a usurpation of the player's rights, but perhaps is made necessary by the peculiar nature of the baseball business, and the player is indirectly compensated by the improved standing of the game. All right, it's, there's a little give and take there. Yeah. Right. However, yeah. Ward was of two minds on the subject. He wrote an article for Lippincourt's magazine entitled, quote, Is the Baseball Player a Chattel? Shortly before his book. What's a chattel? I, I, I don't know. I assume something to be a commodity, I yeah, assume. Yeah, I, I guess. Uh, shortly before his book came out. The article criticized the sales system whenever a player was sold to another ball club. Clubs began selling players for high sums of money in the 1880s. Chicago sold King Kelly to Boston of the National League for $10,000. Kelly asked for a percentage of the proceeds, but received no remuneration. The player's complaint was that the buying club was not just retaining the player's services for the remainder of the contract, but was buying the right to reserve or resell him again. Ward said, quote, Kelly received his salary from Chicago and earned every dollar of it several times over, and yet the Chicago club takes $10,000 for releasing Kelly from a claim for which it never paid him a dollar but which it acquired by seizure some years ago. Okay, it makes more sense. Chattel means like, yeah, like enslaved basically to a company. Yes. Tethered and bonded. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So so he's saying that, he's saying that you're literally selling this player and he deserves... He deserves some compensation for it. Because he, in his contract, it says he plays baseball. It doesn't say that like you can just sell him down the river and or just whatever. Mm-hmm. All right. So the article caught the temper of the times among many top players. Quote: Every dollar received by uh, the club could afford to pay that sum as a bonus. It could just as well have paid it to the player in the form of an increased salary. 
The whole thing is a conspiracy, pure and simple, on the part of the clubs by which they are making money rightfully belonging to the players. In 1889, Ward put his money where his mouth was and stood behind his ideals. He received word that the Giants were planning to sell him to either Boston or Washington for a record $12,000. He refused to play unless the release money would be divided equally. Oh, so like 6000 each? Yes. Okay. As he thought it wasn't fair that the New York club should just dispose of him without the reception of his share of the money paid. The sale did not take place. Ah. Owners refused to pay Ward half the price and backed out of the deal. Over the winter came the brush classification plan that we talked about earlier. And in the winter of 1889, the brotherhood ambivalence towards the reserve rule came to an end. The Players' Union had been motivated to start their own league. The Players' League. All right. A key person in the Brotherhood's plans was Albert L. Johnson, a Cleveland trolley car entrepreneur, an avid fan of baseball, and most importantly, brother of the mayor of Cleveland, Tom L. Johnson. (laughs) That, That helps. Yes. Connections. Yes. The Johnsons were willing to put up seed money to start a new league, and were effective conduits for seeking other men willing to be backers of the new league. Selfishly, the Johnsons also likely knew that a new league would result in new ballparks, which would require new streetcar lines, and visions of money stacks danced in their heads as much as the eyes of the players. I like this. I like how they... So these players need some help. Uh, they're, 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 they're in trouble. They want to form their own league. Yeah, all right, all they, right. I got a brother. He's the mayor. And I run a streetcar <laughs> company. <laughs> We're going to make billions. <laughs> it's a great plan. I mean, to other, a certain extent. I just don't know how they got there, really. Well, it happened. Other Players League investors included Illinois, Illinois Military Academy Superintendent Edward Talcott, John Addison, a wealthy Chicago contractor, noted realtor Wendell Goodwin, Edwin McAlpin, prominent New York Republican and tobacco manufacturer, and Cornelius Van Cott, the postmaster of New York and former New York senator. <laughs> okay, he was a senator. I thought you were just going to say he was the postmaster. No. Like, Man, things have changed. <laughs> I know the postmaster, dude. Like, don't worry. Well, the postmaster like, would have been a big deal back it then. It would have been a big deal. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would be like, like uh, I guess it would be like the newspaper guy. Uh, yeah, for the most part. You control the flow of information. Yeah. But, you know, eh, yeah. The league right. was to be run on a cooperative basis, each club governed by a board of equal numbers of players and backers. There was to be a league senate that operated on the same premise, and all profits were to be shared out between players and investors. Socialized baseball. There was so, to, they actually socialized baseball. Yeah. I literally tweeted like weeks ago. I know. Socialized baseball yes. while we were going through this latest. Li- oh my God. Well, they did it. There was to be no reserve clause or classification. Players signed three year deals at whichever was a higher salary between their 1888 and 1889 contracts. And many players bought stock in their clubs, a practice forbidden in the National League. Over 100 men strong took an unprecedented step in October of 1889 and refused to sign contracts for 1890. On November 4th, the Brotherhood of Professional Baseball Players issued a manifesto penned by John Ward declaring to, quote, play the next season under new management. All right. Quote, there was a time when the league stood for integrity and fair dealing. Today it stands for dollars and cents. 
Once it looked to the elevation of the game and an honest exhibition of the sport, today its eyes are upon the turnstile. Men have come into the business for no other motive than to exploit it for every dollar in sight. Measures originally intended for the good of the game have been perverted into instruments for the wrong. The reserve rule and the provisions of the national agreement gave the managers unlimited power, and they have not hesitated to use this in the most arbitrary and mercenary way. Players have been bought and sold as though they were sheep instead of American citizens. Reservation for them became, for them, another name for property right in the player. By a combination among themselves stronger than the strongest trust, they were able to enforce the most arbitrary measures, and the player had either to submit or get out of the profession in which he had spent years in attaining a proficiency. We believe it is possible to conduct our national game upon lines which will not infringe upon individual and natural rights. We ask to be judged solely by our business conducted more intelligently under a plan which excludes everything arbitrary and un-American. We look forward with confidence to the support of the public and the future of the national game. Wow. Yeah. Remember when workers' rights used to be an American ideal? Yeah. <laughs> These people are all—they're all about money and 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 business. We just want to be a part of the game because we're the true Americans. Yes. It's uh, it, the, the saddest part is I know this won't work out. <laughs> <laughs> the Brotherhood did not see them. What do you mean the Players' League's not still operating it's, today? Uh, well, I the might bro- find out something <laughs> I didn't know. The Brotherhood did not see themselves merely as employees or as men of inferior background. Albert Spaulding began as a pitcher, and the money earned helped him to finance the sporting goods empire which made his fortune. And thus, the players of the union saw no separation between themselves and the magnates who owned their contracts. Ward was asked if he ever thought the trouble between the players and the NL management would end, if they could only get over the idea that they own us, he said. Leading up to opening day 1890, The Players' League won legal rulings invalidating the reserve rule and permitting the PL to freely sign NL players. Early on, supporters of each league attempted to gain the lead in the propaganda war. The Players' League painted themselves as friends of the toiling classes, and the NL in turn tried to portray the players as contract-breaking radicals, and the conflict fueled a great deal of public speculation. The leagues compiled their rosters and schedules, completing final preparations for the tumultuous season which was to become known as the Brotherhood War. In 18... (laughs) The Brotherhood War. Everything's war back then. Yeah, well, it it makes sense. So they're able to sign guys out of the National League. Yeah. So they've got legal rulings thanks to to Bill doing his thing. Yes. Uh, And so now they're they're splitting it. I I just love... I'm sure there was like... John. John Moore. Not yeah. Bill. No. Not John. Bill. I don't know yeah. where I got Bill yeah. from. I don't know. But uh, Carry on. as I was saying, I, I like I like the the, the the framing of it. Which is like well, basically what you still see today when it comes to labor is just like these people don't know what it's like to run a business. <laughs> and the other people are like, These people have no passion for the work we do. Yeah. <laughs> and it's exactly still, what's it's going 130 on. Hundred and thirty years. Yeah. Later. In eighteen eighty nine, almost all of the National League players were members of the Brotherhood of Players, and the majority of those men joined the Players League for eighteen ninety. Fifteen future Hall of Famers joined the ranks, including Jake Beckley, Dan Browthers, Charles Comiskey, Roger Connor, Ed Delahanty, All right. Hugh Duffy, 
Buck Ewing, Pud Galvin, nice. Tim Keefe, King Kelly, Connie Mack, Jim O'Rourke, Old Hoss Radburn, nice. Ned Hanlon, and John Ward. Amazing. This left the NL with few established stars, and they were forced to bring up many young players to fill their rosters. Once so, so wait, this, but this is basically the equivalent of like just expansion. Well, no, but also it's, it would be the equivalent of expansion, and then like let's say like Jose Altuve and and Mike Trout and Rondon, and like it's just like all like everyone gets up and leaves. Who's yes. like who is somebody? Yeah, most likely because they've are they are somebody's too, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that's the one thing. Like yeah, well just, that's why they're going. That's why they're yeah. going is because they feel like they're getting fucked in the national league. And they're and, all veterans yes. and they know that they're stars. And no matter what, so they'll be able to play somewhere. And if they have success in the players' league, they should get paid. Yeah. Uh, yes, one of the rookies that came up, I should mention, was the legendary Cy Young. Uh, anyway, investors in both leagues also played a role in the struggle for supremacy in the minds of baseball fans. The Players League capitalists were well-connected entrepreneurs, of which many were involved in politics. The NL owners had among their ranks A.H. Soden, J.B. Billings, and W.H. Conant in Boston. Lots of initials. Lots of, I love that. Everybody's initials back then. Albert Spaulding in Chicago, John B. O'Day in New York, and Colonel John Rogers in Philadelphia. Colonels, too. Like, everyone's colonels back then. <laughs> Lots yeah. of colonels. Lots of colonels. Lots of military guys in Philadelphia. And these men had been owners of their respective clubs for many years made substantial investments to develop their holdings, and purchased land to build ballparks. Although the Players League backers made similar investments, they didn't make nearly as much equity or they didn't have nearly as much equity involved as National League owners, and this would lead to weakness on the part of the Players League and a strong will to fight on the part of the National League owners. Uh, so you know they've 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 got a lot more to lose, I guess. So well, and the players just don't have as much capital. It's yeah, like it's you know it's an it's indie, a it's, it's a an record label versus a versus a major label. Right, right. Uh, the American Association would be the deciding factor to the question of whether or not the Players League would survive. The Brotherhood held chapters in Double A cities, but had yet to make any attempts to lure any Double A players to their ranks. The American Association runners-up of 1889, the St. Louis Browns, became the Chicago Players League franchise, but this was an exception rather than the rule. Uh, The NL also enticed the 89 AA pennant winners, the Brooklyn Bridegrooms. That's an amazing name. (laughs) The Brooklyn Bridegrooms. Cleveland. (laughs) (laughs) You are now the Cleveland Bridegrooms. (laughs) That's... Uh, uh, yeah, the, the Brooklyn Bridegrooms to become the new Brooklyn franchise of their league and also lured many double-A stars to replace the Brotherhood defectors to the Players League. The American Association was obviously greatly weakened by the poaching of their two top clubs. However, this put them in a key position. Whomever, whomever the association supported would likely win the battle and put an end to the baseball war. The NL had violated the reserve rule, so there was no real reason to support them. Both the NL and PL opposed Sunday baseball, 25-cent admission, and serving alcohol. All cornerstones of the association. Wait, so... So this is, Sunday, this is back with the blue rules. they playing on Sunday, though? 
the uh, the American Association would play on Sunday. All right, and they'd serve alcohol, and they'd serve alcohol. So they're saying that, but they, you know, they didn't want to support either of the other two leagues because they supported the blue laws, and Uh, and charged fifty cents uh, because they wanted a higher class. So you get drunk and discount baseball on a Sunday. That's right. That's what that's what the American Association was all about. That sounds like a great time. It's freedom. All right. Freedom. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, rumors swirled all season of the association and the players league joining forces. However, the most influential of association owners opted to assume a neutral position. The initial battles of the brotherhood war were fought in the pages of the respective guides for each league. Albert Spalding published the Spalding guide, official guide to the national league. Al reach published the Reach Guide? That's right. Ah. The official book of the American Association. These guides held team records, player stats, official rules, and other info fans and reporters would find useful. The Players League published their own league guide penned by Chicago sports writer and league secretary-treasurer Frank Brunel. Each guide took the opportunity to apply spin control to the narrative and make their respective leagues look good. The first shot fired by the National League came in response to the Brotherhood's manifesto. The National League declared it was formed in 1876, quote, as a necessity to take the game from the hands of the ballplayers who had controlled and dominated the National Association of Baseball Players. They implied that baseball run by the players would result in, quote, that contract-breaking dissipation and dishonesty which had, quote, undermined the game to such an extreme that it seemed an almost hopeless task to attempt its rescue. Yeah, they're the heroes. Says who? Like, you know, like, <laughs> you just write this arbitrarily in your guide. And anyway, that's what we're talking about. It declared that the league, it declared that the reserve rule was good for players and it acted with their consent. Yeah, see, they, they don't have to worry about moving. No, nope. ever. They're, yep. they're good. They, they, they said it was cool. They only have to buy one uniform. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Decried the Players League as, quote, an edifice built on falsehood, and its members as, quote, overpaid players who sought to, quote, control the game for their own aggrandizement. 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 Big, well, yeah. I like the, the vocabulary back in there, yeah. <laughs> Henry Chadwick wrote the Spalding Guide and towed the party line, giving evidence purporting to show that under the reserve clause, nearly every player had seen his salary increase every year, including those sold. We keep giving you slightly more money. Yeah, just a bit more money. Yeah. (laughs) The PL, uh, the Players League Manifesto, was declared a revolutionary pronunciamento. All right. Yes. Not even going to try. Pronunciamento. Is that right? I don't know. Maybe Carrying on. You either found a new word or you spelled a word wrong. No, just... no. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, that's right. The Brotherhood was declared, quote, men guilty of secrecy and ingratitude. The Players League characterized as the instrument of its leaders and Ward was called, quote, chief conspirator and behind the secessionists and an employer of, quote, terrorism, peculiar to revolutionary movements. Oh, okay. Getting extreme, yeah. (laughs) Ward also was singled out by pro-National League papers as the leader of the Players League and was ridiculed with nicknames the likes of John Much Advertised Ward and Judas Montgomery Ward. (laughs) (laughs) And one is, like, petty, and then the other one's just like, whoa, man. (laughs) 
Been playing on a Sunday. They're gonna stab the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't even want to play on Sunday. Yeah, well, that's yeah. Uh, anyway, the Players National League Guide contained articles written by John Ward and Tim Keefe about the Players League and the Brotherhood. The preface denied any suppositions, lectures, or theories. However, both articles are heavy on rhetoric meant to sway the reader to the Brotherhood side. Absolutely. Yeah, Obviously. They're, they're just taking shots at each yeah. other from the, the, the handbook. That's right. <laughs> you go to a Blue Jays game and they're like, welcome to the Blue Jays, where we're not the fucking National League because they fucking suck. Yeah, if don't... you look at your program, you'll see <laughs> 10 <laughs> reasons why we're better than the National League. <laughs> but this is, this is not a lecture. This, you're supposed to make up your own mind on this here. <laughs> Uh, so in his article, uh, Ward rehashed the NL's disregard for the interest of its players, the reserve rule, and the odious classification law. He also touted that the new league would be superior to the National League and described the Players League capitalists as joining the cause, quote, out of love for the sport and a desire to see it placed on a plane above that upon which it is being operated currently. Ward carefully defined the Brotherhood's position as one of entrepreneurship as opposed to one of disloyalty and greed. Quote, The conduct of men, he wrote, has thoroughly refuted the National League's declaration that the baseball player has, was not able to do business for himself. He continued, They show how undismayed by opposition, undaunted by desertions, unmoved by all the bluff and bluster a powerful enemy can devise. In the face of obstacles which might have crushed a less just or weaker cause, the new movement and its men went fearlessly on, turning neither to the right nor left, stooping to no dishonorable action, until today the Players' National League stands brightly forth as the strongest eight clubs in playing talent and general personnel ever gathered together and the representation of all that is manly and honest in baseball. To the player, it is a living monument for all time to come. Okay. <laughs> Have they considered digging this guy up and replacing Tony Clark with him? <laughs> like they should like if they haven't, yes. yes. <laughs> speeches like that, he just keeps like, wow. He's yeah. good with words. Mm -hmm. Ward and the Players League tried to strike chords that would resonate among middle-class professional men who could afford to leave work and pay 50 cents to see a ball game midweek. Keefe's piece gave the brotherhood for or gave credit to the brother, brotherhood for eradicating the quote selling and buying of players the reserve rule and the classification system and associated the union with the best interests of baseball quote the only conclusion that a thoroughly informed and fair-minded person can reach is that the brotherhood has benefited and will continue to benefit and elevate the game in the future far more than the braggart national league ever claimed to have done in the past in the day when the National League had a chance to show what it cared for the game when not associated with its own profit, the National League's exhibition was a mean and miserable one. No means, however dirty and enervating, were not in called into play to wreck the Brotherhood and its kindred organization, the Players' National League. Both stand and will live on to a glorious old age. All right, that was a little bit more of just like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're both going to succeed. That's the plan. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, no, this is the Brotherhood as well. It's oh. just like this is Keefe's article in the guide. No, I get it. So he's he's not saying the National League will succeed. Or he's saying the league and the brotherhood. Yes. Oh, yes. okay. I thought that was a little bit of unity, being like, yeah, whatever. Both will be great. In the no, league. no. Oh. This is him uh, also saying fuck the national. Yeah, league. that was a bit of. I, I should, yeah. yeah, no, definitely. I was, no, his was, was a, a little more wordy and like yeah. all over the place. Anyway, the National League believed that they had the right to the brotherhood men's services and sued in state courts in order to obtain injunctions barring the players from work for any baseball league other than the NL. Oh. New York Supreme Court Justice Morgan J. O'Brien was hearing the first of these cases brought against Ward by the New York Giants. The argument made by the plaintiff was that the reserve rule applied to any baseball entity, whether it was signed into the 1883 agreement or not. Okay. It's just ridiculous. Like, so they're saying anybody? Like, it's like you could just arbitrarily be like, I want that Little League kid. Yeah. You know? Like, He's mine now. Yeah. We serve clubs. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> You're never going anywhere, kid. Yeah. You're living in New York now. <laughs> I'm from Pittsburgh. Yeah, too bad. <laughs> Put on these concrete shoes. <laughs> Ward's position as the defendant was that, quote, the action was purely an exhibition of bunkum on the part of the plaintiffs and intended from its inception to terrorize players and prevent them from signing with the Players League, thus crushing out its life. Ward's counsel decried the NL's position that the reserve clause made contracts renewable and further said that, quote, Ward signed a contract for only seven months of 1889 and for any court to construe the reserve rule as interpreted by the league officials was worse than the ancient cruelty where the victim was put in an iron chamber, never realizing his danger until he saw the walls contracting and knew he was to be crushed. Jesus, I'm telling you, the players would get everything. The judge awarded the case to Ward on the grounds that the standard contract consisted of an inequitable balance between the players and owners. I don't know what that guy said, but this guy said it's like crushed between two walls. Yeah, so fuck that. We're not doing that. <laughs> We're not doing yeah. that. Denounced the contract for having a lack of mutuality and quote, upon the grounds that the contract is indefinite and uncertain. The case set a precedent, and as a result, other players won suits refusing injunctions. Ward, who had written against the inequities of player contracts for years, was the standard bearer in the victory over, quote, baseball law in court. The Players League was officially allowed to proceed with their plans to open the 1890 season in direct competition with the National League. So, like, all this shit has happened before they've even played a game. Yes. Wow. Yes. Oh, my God. And guess what? There's a little bit more oh. before they even play the game. All right. The Players League released their schedule in March of 1890. The National League soon after released their own schedule, which paralleled the issue, the one issued by the Players League. So this is like a USFL, NFL yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Eight, 1980s thing. 1890s. 1890s. <laughs> the NL was showing that they were willing to fight without quarter. In Chicago, the National League White Stockings and the Players League Pirates had 48 conflicting dates out of 70 home games. In Philadelphia, there were three teams, and on 32 occasions, all three clubs were playing at once. See, this doesn't sound smart for No, this is, this is petty, like, stubbornness on all of their parts. Yes. 
Uh, in Philadelphia, oh, okay, on 60 occasions, the National League Phillies and the Buffington's Players League Beauties, which is another Philadelphia club, Beauty. uh, conflicted. And the Athletics and Phillies conflicted on 37 dates, and the Athletics and Beauties conflicted on 35 dates. So, like, you know, lots of options in uh, Philadelphia, yeah. but, like, you know. Only so really many fans. Re- yeah, really so many fans. Yeah, so many fans for the teams. Uh, Alan Spaulding headed the National League War Committee. <laughs> War, War Committee. War Committee. It is yeah. Yeah. And stood firmly that he would, quote, conflict with the players in every way possible. The Players League rose to the challenge and declared, quote, as the season goes on and we prove our superiority over the National League and caring for the public and giving it better baseball than it has ever seen before, the average attendance in our favor will increase. Yeah, well, I mean, but just talk about, or like, just, I mean, obviously they're calling it a war. There's no good faith in it, but it just sounds like the classic, like, what we've seen politically. Just like, well, I don't care. I'm not agreeing no matter what. <laughs> yes, exactly. Doesn't matter so to dumb. me. I'm just going to make their life a living We're hell. the best. We're the best. We're going to prove we're the yeah, best. We're not in charge we're... anymore, but we're still the best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Players League had three options. One, change their schedule wholesale. Two, change it slightly by adding Sunday games. Oh, <laughs> oh no, no, no. Or three, do nothing. The Players League leaders, Ward in particular, felt that by breaking the Sabbath, they would attract an undesirable type of customer. <laughs> Ultimately, that sounds slightly racist. I think it's just like we don't want the sinners and the poor people here. Basically, yes. yeah, no, and just people that aren't Christian, right? Yes, yes, yeah. true. Ultimately, the Players League chose to leave their schedule alone as planned. Maybe the first of something of stupid moves. Anyway, yeah. as the 1890 season progressed, the war had become a popularity contest, and it was measurable every day by counting the attendance at the ball games. Exaggerated attendance figures grew popular. The public became turned off by appeals to their loyalty and the dishonesty of the clubs, and attendance dropped lower in 1890 than in 1889 as a result. For everyone. Yes, for everyone. Several clubs were losing money. Issues of attendance and profitability became more important than the outcomes of the games themselves. The eyes of all sporting persons were drawn to the turnstiles. The decision to shun Sunday baseball exemplified the conservatism of the Players League movement. The leaders of the Players League considered themselves to be a middle-class professionals and supported blue laws and Sabbath observance which did not meet the needs of the poorer working classes. The Brotherhood was not willing to participate in what was in their eyes an immoral practice for monetary gain. Yeah, I mean, sure. So in their minds, they were doing it for an honorable reason. Like, they're not about the money, right? They're not about the, yeah, no, why would we do that? No, okay. So this position of elitism would contribute to the ultimate failure of the Players League. Oh, God. Yeah. So, well, we know that that's inevitable. Like, I just don't... The decision to not adjust your schedule... I mean, first of all, it was probably the National League being dicks. But you would think... Well, the National League is uh, has been dicks throughout the whole story well, so that's far. What I mean. So, But, I mean, if you're the Players Association and you put out your schedule... Like, shouldn't like if there's gonna be no collaboration between anybody, like everyone's gonna lose. 
as we know. Yeah. As uh, yes. it's just it's the the fucked up part is just like wouldn't you as the players league want to wait to see the national league schedule to kind of like fill in the gap? Like yes. I, I don't know. Uh, that would be probably the. See so that you think, uh, and I agree. Like but part, then the national part, league got their schedule first, and they were like, "Well, screw them." <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're just <laughs> we're not gonna They're change. all arrogant fucks, yeah, you know. No, like it's it's absolutely wild. We're gonna be the best, and and we're not gonna. We're just gonna take everything head on instead of where we can all make money. Together and we can all succeed. Oh my god, you know? it's like we're oh, this is giving me a headache because it's just the same. Like it's just like it's putting my dog to sleep. I know, but it's <laughs> it's the same shit that we hear now, right? Yeah, like, about anything, about anything, about everything. Especially this, this like story is like a microcosm for like just every capitalism. Yeah, and <laughs> well, and the fact that like. Even now, we're we're seeing the exact same arguments from people like, "Oh, the players are entitled," and like, "Oh, the biz- owners are greedy," and like, it's just as I say, it's it's been it's disheartening to hear. One hundred and thirty years ago, mm-hmm. that's but still going on. All right, so that was the end. Yeah, of- I'm just gonna leave that at part one because we're already at like forty five minutes or so. Right. So like, so that was part one. Uh, come back in two weeks to hear part two uh, of how it actually goes. That was all the build up to the. Uh, the players association yeah the players league um that was that is infuriating and a lot of good speeches i gotta say yes yes john ward knows how to speak to a crowd and so. bill ward is is the drummer of black sabbath yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> i was, I, was, I knew i'm like i was just like he's a musician that i yeah. know really well all yeah. right uh, Anyway, so tune in next time. Tune in next time. Follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball, Instagram at Doing.Baseball. Uh, yeah. Follow us on Spotify and uh, check us out on Apple Podcasts too. Give us a review. Uh, uh, we're this... on Facebook too. And tune in next page. time because this is gonna be a this is gonna be a very exciting conclusion to this story. Yes. So uh, until next time. I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. We were doing, we're doing baseball. baseball. Bye. Goodbye.